All right. Well, uh, that was fun to take you in a reading back to the Old Testament. Can we just really quick give Molly a round of applause for the hardest reading ever? Uh, Molly is one of our beloved leaders here in the community. I was like, hey, do you mind reading scripture this morning? She's like, sure. How hard could it be? And then she gets blasted with a list of names uh, that she did an excellent job in. Um, This morning, we're in a series on hearing God, hearing God. And this morning, I want to talk to you about hearing God in God's word. But in order to talk about that, I want to start with a story about an approach to God's word, which I would argue haunts us to this day. Are you ready? Uh, It's a distinctly American approach, and it's found in the one and only Thomas Jefferson, who I have a photo of to loom over us here. Uh, Here's one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson, interestingly, uh, was not a Christian, but was a devout deist. He was a deist who believed there was a creator of some kind, and thus Thomas Jefferson famously declares that this creator gave us certain unalienable rights in the Declaration of Independence, right? American History 101. Uh, But Jefferson, as a deist, thought really we, as humanity, should be the rational intuitive creatures who can find the way we're supposed to live uh, with our minds, with our intellect. This was sort of the ethos of the Enlightenment in which Thomas Jefferson existed. However, Jefferson had a problem when he became president of the United States because as much hope as he placed in us to simply figure it out, you know, if we're educated enough, if we think about it enough, we can figure out how to live. As he looked around the country, he noticed there were a lot of differing opinions than his own on how people should live. This was a huge problem for Jefferson. Uh, What is he supposed to do if people are all contested and divisive in a democracy in which the voice of the people should unanimously arise? And so Jefferson comes up with a brilliant idea. He says the people need a book to guide them, right? If they had a book, this book could instruct them. And he has an even greater idea. He says, who is the best moral teacher I have ever encountered in my rigorous philosophical uh, historical studies. Jefferson says, well, I think it was Jesus of Nazareth, right? So Jefferson famously, I'm not making this up, famously set about taking the Gospels and cutting out the portions of the Gospels which contained the teachings and life of Jesus so that he could create a separate book that was free from all of that superstition, the myths, the miracles, all that stuff about the resurrection. And instead, he could finally compile the book of instruction. In fact, Jefferson would call this the moral life of Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, in the Smithsonian, which I have a photo of here, it is simply known as Jefferson's Bible. So if you can track with me the irony, Thomas Jefferson, distinctly American approach, says, I don't like this book, the Bible, that is God's word for us. That's far too controlling and bold and, you know, superstitious. But people don't seem to know how to live when left to their own devices. So I'm going to create my own book in which I literally cut out the portions of that book that I like, and then as I cut and paste and literally assemble a new book to live by, I'm going to offer it to the people, and we finally, finally together will know how to live. Now, my problem is that Thomas Jefferson is a very, very intelligent man. He was very intelligent. But how he couldn't see the irony and contradiction that when he creates a book of verses that he has cut and paste offering it to us, telling us this now is the book that should structure how we live. How did he not see the irony 
that if we don't like what he cut and pasted and put in his book, we could simply cut and paste instructions from his book into our own book that we then say, now this, rationally, intuitively, is truly, finally, the way to live. Except, of course, when someone else receives our book and says, I've got some cutting and pasting of my own to do, right? I say this approach is distinctly American because uh, the Wall Street Journal just recently released a comprehensive study of Gen Z and their religious preferences. And I love Gen Z. This is not to bash on Gen Z. This is just as true of millennials and Gen X. And like this is true for the last 200 years in American history. Gen Z reported that they are increasingly spiritual right now. In fact, about 75% say they believe in a god of some kind. And yet of that 75%, when asked where they derive the authority and inspiration for the god that they are choosing to follow, most said they liked some parts of the Bible, but that other parts of the Bible didn't seem that great. And so they were kind of figuring it out and picking and choosing a little bit of they wanted. In fact, arguably, I would say even us today in this room struggle with the Jefferson approach to the Bible, do we not, if we could get a little honest, where if it was up to us, some parts seem particularly helpful. Let's go ahead and cut those out. And some parts we'll maybe going to leave behind. For that reason, I wanted to take us into the Old Testament, a portion of the Bible, which often, if we're being honest, is the portion that normally gets pushed over to the side. And I wanted to take us to a story, a story from the Old Testament that offers us what it looks like to recover God's voice in the Bible. Okay, so you ready for this? I'm so excited about this passage. I'm excited to dive into it with you. We're going to be looking at 2 Kings 22. If you have a Bible, you can pull out your phone right now to look at it on your phone. We'll have some scriptures up on the screens. Uh, But we're going to be looking at 2 Kings 22, the passage Molly read, and we're going to be looking at King Josiah. However, before we get to Josiah, just one last little bit of background for you. Josiah enters the scene at the tail end of Israel and Judah's history. Okay, this is near the very end of the Old Testament story. Uh, this is before crisis is going to happen, when, as you probably have heard, spoiler alert, Israel and Judah are both going to be exiled. They're going to be sent out from the land uh, because they were not obeying the word of God. However, to get to Josiah, his grandfather, who was called Manasseh, was a king from the line of David, so he's a descendant of David. And Manasseh was infamous for being the absolute low point in the history of the kings of Judah. Okay, so this is Josiah's grandfather. And the reason why Manasseh was particularly terrible is that he did all the things that most of the bad kings did. He let foreign gods come in to be worshipped in Israel across the land. Uh, He allowed the temple to get kind of overrun any competing neighboring deity that wanted to be worshipped. He allowed them to get set up. Uh, He put forward a bunch of high places new altars where people could worship any god they wanted. But the worst thing Manasseh did was the local neighboring deity of the Ammonites, known as Molech, Molech, uh, was a god who was known as the god of fire and the god of death. And infamously, Molech was worshipped through the sacrifice of one of your children. And so Manasseh went into the valley of Himnon, which is this valley to this day right next to Jerusalem, and he took one of his sons who was from the line of David, and he killed his son as a sacrifice to the god Molech. So I give this to you not to depress you or bum you out. Again, I warned you, we're in the Old Testament. This is the portion we'd kind of cut out if we could. Um, but this is, this is the context you're going to need to get to Josiah. This is from 2 Kings 21, 
And this is what the Lord is going to say in response to Manasseh. And you'll see in just a minute why this is so important. Uh, This is verse 10 of the previous chapter. The Lord said by his servants, the prophet, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Okay, this is, this is heavy, but I think you're tracking with me with just a little bit of context why God is so upset. And actually, there's this very interesting parallel in the Hebrew in this passage that I'm going to show you in this next slide uh, that God essentially says, Manasseh has done such great evil, this is the Hebrew word, ra'ah, such great evil that I am going to bring evil ra'ah back upon him. I mean, you should feel a little bit nervous, you should feel a little bit shaky, but here's where the story gets good, okay? You're tracking with me? This was chapter 21. The very next chapter, we discover this brand new scene, and it gives us a huge sigh of hope, and it's actually going to teach us how we might hear God's word in the scriptures again today. Here's what it says in 2 Kings 22. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. I'm going to keep reading. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azalea, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Okay, I'm going to pause here. Seems like a little bit of a mundane history lesson, right? But notice the important points that are starting to pop up about Josiah. First, Josiah's really young. He's eight when he comes to the throne. 18 years have passed, so he's become older. He's now matured into his reign. And in this 18th year, Josiah does something we wouldn't expect from the grandson of Manasseh. He starts to repair the temple. Something's going on in Josiah that he's like, hey, something doesn't seem right here. I feel like I want to get back to the way things have been. I want to restore worship to the God of Israel that we used to follow. And as this is happening, we're now jumping back into the story. Uh, Josiah goes through a lot of motions. You heard it in the reading of the scripture. He's making sure we got the right builders. We trust them. Everything's right. We've had the money collected. Uh, This is what they're here to do. But now I'm going to jump to verse 8. In verse 8, Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. Okay, a number of really interesting things happening right here. First off, this phrase, I have found the book of the law. I've found the book of the law. If you are reading the Old Testament, and you're moving through the story, uh, At the beginning, there's five books, five books that are traditionally associated with Moses. They're called the Torah. Uh, And these five books come up a lot in Joshua, the book immediately following the five books. If you've ever read Joshua, Joshua talks a lot about the book of the law. There's this famous verse where it says, do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth, right? This is Joshua really immersed with the people. We're going to follow the book of the law. Then something interesting happens. After Joshua, which mentions the book of the law six times, there is no mention of the book of the law until this verse in 2 Kings 22. All that means, this is an Old Testament scholar, Terence Fretham, who pointed this out. All it means is that 
this book was truly lost, right? There was no one reading it. They weren't following it. It wasn't on the people's lips. They weren't really tracking with it. I mean, it had disappeared from the scene, even in those really important good times of David and Solomon, where things also did start to go bad, right? The book of the law wasn't there. But now, incredibly, this book has been rediscovered. Now, there's one more note I need to make about this. Our English translations talk about the book of the law, and I think this is actually unhelpful for us as we're trying to get our imaginations around what Josiah has just discovered here. Uh, It's normally a translated book of the law uh, because in our English translations, which were connected with English society four or 500 years ago, the English were very interested in the laws from the Bible. They were trying to take those laws and they were trying to use them to rule England. Uh, we don't have much use for laws in America, right? At least from the Bible. We are a democracy. Thomas Jefferson made sure of it. We come up with our own laws. But if you get back into this Hebrew word, the book of the law is actually the word, the book of the Torah. And Torah quite literally means the book of instruction or the book of guidance. So if you were to go back, and I encourage you to do this at some point, uh, if you were to go back to these first five books of the Bible, what you notice is that there's definitely some laws that pop up, Uh, but there's actually a lot of guidance. There's even these stories. There's some instructions on festivals and celebrations. There's other instructions on how to love your neighbors, how to be in relationship, how to keep your family unit intact. I mean, there's a lot more going on than just black and white laws. And so I just give that to you because I think this is important. When it comes to recovering the word of God, you've got to see these aren't just do's and don'ts. This is actually a book of instruction, a book of guidance. So three interesting observations in part one about how uh, these attendants of Josiah read God's word. Three interesting observations. Let me offer them to you. The first thing I notice about this passage that really stands out to me is that God's word is not just read once, but God's word is actually read repeatedly. <laughs> Did you catch it? Like, Shaphan discovered, or Hilkiah, excuse me, discovers it, and it's sort of implied Hilkiah at least figured out what was going on. He says, hey, I think I've just found the book of the law. Then he takes it to Shaphan, and Shaphan's like, hold on, let me read this. So Shaphan reads the whole book of the law. Then he goes over to the king, and he's like, hey, Hilkiah found the book of the law, and the king's like, read it to me. And so then Shaphan starts reading through the book of the law, and in just a minute, we're going to find they move on to a new person who yet again, it says they sit down and they begin to read this book of the law. Here's my first observation for you when it comes to recovering God's voice in the Bible. Uh, Are you reading, are you hearing God's word enough that it's able to settle in, to sink into your life. I think for some of us, the problem is we've uh, come up with this habit or this pattern, maybe it's on Sunday, maybe it's during your week, where you read the Bible once, and we tend to be information people. So we read it and we're like, whew, got it, (laughs) moving on, right? Check, done, nailed it, Uh, I'm ready to go. What I love about this story is that these attendants and Josiah himself see something so important is happening We can't just read this once. Like, we've got to go back and read this thing at least a couple of times if we're going to understand what's going on in it. The second thing I'd observe that you probably noticed too is that nowhere in this passage does anybody just read this word on their own. Instead, this word is not only read repeatedly, it's also read communally. The first time I came to this passage, 
I heard, I thought, sort of my Sunday school memories of it was that this passage is all about Josiah reading the Bible, King Josiah reading it on his own. Instead, what you probably noticed that Blessed Molly had to suffer through in her own reading is that instead there's all these like people around that are sort of like reading and talking and they're discussing. And you can imagine why this matters in this story is that Hilkiah is the high priest. He's, he's overseeing the whole Levitical system. This has huge implications for Hilkiah. But then Shaphan is sort of the secretary treasurer over the whole kingdom. Shaphan's trying to figure out, okay, how is this going to affect our policies? How are we going to redistribute what we've got here according to what this word is saying? And King Josiah isn't going to stop here in just a second we discover that King Josiah says, listen, let's go read this with more people. Let's keep going. We should not be reading this book alone. Now, again, if I could apply this to us, if some of us are just reading God's word once, some of us are trying to read God's word on our own, and we're confused why it's not actually changing our lives. But when you start reading this book in community, when you start taking it seriously as the words of God's instruction for you, then suddenly you find things start moving, things start happening, things start changing when a whole community is looking at each other going, hey, we've just received God's word of instruction for us. How are we all now going to live accordingly? Final observation comes in how King Josiah responds to this book of the law. This is verse 11 through 13. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Aachim son of Shaphan, Akbar son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's attendants. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people, for all of Judah, about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book they have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Okay, so just gently, I want to observe that this response of Josiah is the opposite posture, the opposite approach to how Thomas Jefferson, thousands of years later, would approach the word of God, right? Jefferson reads the word of God and he says, ah, some of it seems helpful, <laughs> right? Like, I'm going to take some of it. Whereas Josiah reads the word of God and he just starts ripping his clothes, being like, oh no, this has so many implications for me. Like even the uncomfortable bits, this is not good. We have not been doing well. And do you notice the most amazing part about Josiah's response is he's not even focused on the things he's done wrong. He's tracking that the things that happened before him have implications for him in the present. And so he's going, man, we have been walking against the grain of this word for so long that surely some terrible judgment and disaster is coming for us. Okay, if this is how Josiah reads it, repeatedly, communally, submissively, I think you can see some of the invitation, right? What would it look like for us to think about how we approach this word a little bit differently than the Thomas Jefferson Bible? What would it look like for us to not just be on our own, read it once, take what we want from it, what would it look like for us to become a community that is repeatedly, together, submissively entering into this word that God gives? Now, here's the fun part, if you're willing to go a little bit further with me. The story's not yet done, and there's actually this amazing follow-up scene that I want to get to that has even more implications for how we approach 
this word. So let's keep going with this story. Um, this is sort of part two. And part two, it's fascinating, is that Josiah reads the word, but then Josiah realizes reading it alone is not enough. Josiah now needs to figure out what it means. How do we interpret this word for our actual lives? How do we live now according to the word that's just been read? I love, Josiah is not a, a legalist or a fundamentalist. Josiah, I think, quite wisely, courageously realizes that even though he's feeling anxious, like, man, there's a lot of things that have gone wrong. His first move is not to simply say, all right, now everybody go follow all these laws. Like, let's just try to live this as clear and close as we can because I'm, I'm really stressed by what's happening here. Instead, Josiah says this. Have you ever seen this part of the story? This is verse 14. Hilkiah the priest, Achaim, Akbar, Shaphan, and Isaiah, went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalem, son of Tikva, the son of Herhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter. Okay, come on. Let's have a little bit of fun here. We've just stumbled on a prophetess in the Old Testament. This is interesting. Uh, this is a little bit disruptive. There's only six of them that appear in the Old Testament. Though, let me just offer you the encouragement, especially to any ladies in the room, there are six of them. You can't just avoid and ignore the prophetesses that are sort of operating in Israel's society. Instead, very clearly, Hulda is someone of such prominence and wisdom, who is known as someone filled with the Spirit of God, that she was sought out by the entire royal court. Isn't that kind of fun? But just so the gentlemen in the room know that they're not being left out, uh, we do get a mention that she is the wife of Shalem, son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, whose intriguing job is the keeper of the wardrobe. I mean, come on. You want a job in the Old Testament. I feel like whatever, whatever we know about Huldah and Shalem, we know they definitely looked good, okay? So, so this is Huldah. We meet Huldah, and here's what I want to say. I think Huldah offers us, in the next couple of verses, one of the most intricate and complex yet beautiful interpretations of God's interaction with humanity in the space of four or five verses. So this is going to get really complex. It's going to stretch you theologically just a little bit, but I think you're going to see with me how incredible this response is from Huldah. So here's what she says. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people, according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. Because they've forsaken me and burn incense to other gods and arouse my anger by all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Okay, so far this is quite bad news. But now this is verse 19. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people— that they would become a curse and be laid waste because you tore your robes and wept in my presence. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I'm going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. I mean, come on. Why aren't we reading the Old Testament more, right? This is good. This is drama happening. If you're tracking with Hulda, I mean, the first thing she says, I think, is something quite uh, uncomfortable for us. First thing she says is, listen, the plans of God are not going to change. God has made a promise. God has spoken through God's prophets. And because God has spoken, God's plans are secure. 
Now, I know for many of us, uh, we feel the intense pressure and the stress in our relationship with God. Most of us feel, even when we read this, this word, this book that is God's words for us, we feel like, but God, do you really understand how complicated our situation is? Like, do you really understand all the things that have changed culturally and socially? And like, don't you see that there's so much going on in my life and, and there's pressures and there's, there's like trauma and there's heartache and like, God, can't you flex a little bit? And this, unfortunately, is the hard first word that Holda offers. God's word is secure. God's promises are clear and God will do what God has promised. Now, obviously, while that can be a little bit stressful, I think if you get over that initial anxiety, what you begin to notice and ponder is, huh, maybe it is a good thing that God is going to follow through on God's promises, right? Maybe it is a good thing that God does have a plan. (laughs) Because sometimes when I look around, I'm like, hey, God, uh, is this going according to plan? Or was this, you know, like adjacent to plan? Or what's going on, God, with the plan? Uh, There is a comfort to be had in Hulda's words. And interestingly, Josiah seems to receive her word with a little bit of comfort and a little bit of acceptance. Thank you, God. Thank you for being firm and secure. Thank you for having a plan and a purpose to our redemption. But here's the crazy maker for any of us who get too activated, too excited by like, God's got a plan. Yeah, go God, work this all through. Uh, What we also see inevitably in this passage is the crazy maker that happens again and again and again, over and over in scripture. Every time you see someone approach God's word and humble themselves and repent, God says, I will create space for your repentance in my plan. I'm actually gonna meet you with grace. I'm going to meet you. I will respond to you. Isn't that so bold and daring of Hulda to say? Isn't that bold and daring of God to offer? (laughs) Like God has this plan that God is working out. God says this disaster is coming. And then Josiah is like, wait, I read your word. And like, I repent. We've made a mistake. And God says, I'm listening, right? I'm listening. I'm here. I will respond to you. I will meet you here. If, if you can hold this with me, I think this passage summarizes one of the great mysteries, one of the great conundrums, and it presents it as a tension, and yet I think the Bible does hold this tension over and over and over again. God does have a plan, and yet God also responds to us in God's plan. Isn't it beautiful that why, why we should come to this word, why we should wrestle with God's word today, why this book of instruction isn't just something to cut out or throw to the side or sort of pass along, but it's actually something to wrestle with is that I think, I think if you read this word seriously, you would start to see God has a plan and it's going to be okay. Like we can actually put our hope, we can live our stories within God's stories and yet, yet incredibly, relentlessly, God keeps extending to us, do you want to become part of my plan? Do you want to be a player? Do you want to have a role? Do you want to advocate, lament? Do you want to cry out? Do you want to, do you want to like contend against injustice here in the city? Do you, do you want to call for my grace, call for my mercy? I am listening. Come, come interact with my word. Come cry out to me. Now, here's what's amazing as I move towards wrapping us up here. 
Josiah, the story's not quite over. I'm going to take you in a blitz through the next chapter just to close us out. Because you've got to be wondering, okay, what now? Right? What happens now that Josiah both hears the slightly heavy pronouncement, God's word is secure, his plan is going to be enacted, but then also sees the response. God says, because you cared, because you repented, your days will be lengthened and this disaster will be held off. Uh, Josiah vigorously sets about responding to this. Uh, Josiah is going to do three things in rapid, consec- uh, rapid movement. <laughs> forgive me. Uh, Josiah is going to first renew the covenant. I'm going to move really fast through this. Uh, but we find in this amazing passage, immediately after Huldah speaks this word, the king calls together all the elders of Judah, Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the great. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, decrees with all their heart and with all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Here's my question for you this morning. Some of us, some of us have, have been hurt. Some of us have been disappointed. Some of us have received really flat readings of this word of God. Um, some of us just have grown tired or disinterested or have kind of wondered, like, what does this word have for me? What sort of instruction or guidance is it offering to my life? Is there an invitation for you this morning to renew your commitment to the word of God? I do think Josiah is right that it starts here. The first response is to say, are you in? <laughs> Will you submit? Will you open up your heart to say, I want this word to be God's word for my life. But Josiah doesn't stop there. Let's keep going. The second thing Josiah is going to do in rapid succession is he's going to cleanse the high places. Again, I'm going to move fast here. This whole chapter sort of breaks it down for us. But notice in rapid succession, all this action and movement on Josiah's part, we're told in verse 4, the king ordered Hilkiah, the high priest, the priest next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. He burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of the Kinron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous idolatrous priests, Molly, well done again, uh, appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and all those around Jerusalem, those who burn incense to Baal, to the sun and moon, to the constellations and all the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kinrod Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes that were in the temple of the Lord, the quarters where women did weaving for Asherah. Okay, like that was six verses and I'm tired, right? Like, that was a lot of movement. And yet, yet, here's the inevitable question. And oh, this is, this is the question that I think is why most of us avoid this word to be heard from God. The question is, are there high places when you start taking this word seriously that might need to be torn down? Are there high places? Uh, we see Josiah cleanse the temple, the sanctuary where worship is supposed to take place. We see him cleanse out the priests. So all of these priests and priestesses who are using their hands to facilitate worship of these foreign gods, he cleanses out the idols, the symbols, the signs, the things that are being worshipped too. And then he cleanses the high places. He goes to these places that had previously been set aside so that people could come offer their offerings to foreign gods. And he says, I'm taking them all out of this land. We cannot be committed 
to this word. We cannot renew our covenant if we do not cleanse this land of foreign worship. I think this image, uh, while intense, is helpful. And I think it's probably even more concrete, much as Josiah does this very concretely. It's probably more concrete for most of us than we would like to acknowledge. Uh, There's a concreteness to say, are there places in your life right now, places that you frequent or inhabit that are not helping you? They are not actually facilitating your good. Are there priests and priestesses in your own heart that are sort of busy at work in high places, offering worship to the gods of anxiety, to the gods of stress, to the gods of depression, to the gods of addictions? Are there high places that are either places in your mind, places in your heart, relationships, frustrations, disappointments, doubts, that you have been allowing to linger because honestly, it's a lot of hard work to cleanse a high place out. And here's where Josiah offers us the boldness. He says, do it. Jump into action. Let the cleansing roll like a river across the land. Here's the final action Josiah does after cleansing, though. He doesn't just end at cleansing. He finally restores the Passover meal. And so we find in 2 Kings 23, 21 to 22, the king gave this order to all the people, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant, neither in the days of the judges who led Israel nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. I find this quite beautiful that Josiah doesn't just remove, he also replaces. You catch that? And isn't it kind of moving to think like the Passover is a, pa- is a celebration, a remembrance of what God has done for Israel, the redemption that has taken place through death, actually, the death of firstborns, the death of a lamb. But it's also a feast, right? It's a celebration. I love that Josiah's like, after we cleanse, we celebrate because there is a meal here that reminds us that God is for us and that God is working redemption for us. Okay, here's my landing. Uh, this is quite a story. This is one that you might need to spend some time in this week. You might want to go back to 2 Kings 22, 2 Kings 23. And there are some profound implications, I think, for us, for our community. How do we read this word repeatedly? How do we talk about it together, communally? How do we cleanse out our hearts to prepare us submissively? But here's where I want to end for you, just in case you're feeling nervous or anxious, because I know it it, it is a lot to re-approach God's voice through God's word. Here's what John tells us in his gospel, that when the word of God appeared, it took on flesh and showed us the glory of God, right? Here's this beautiful verse. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. But notice at the end, the two guiding principles that I think hold it captured in her interpretation. This God is full of grace and full of truth. When you go back to read God's word this week, if you're coming back submissively to the word of God, know 
that God's word always comes to us in grace and in truth. So for any of you who are stressed, any of you who feel you can never keep all of these instructions, you can't satisfy or live up to the commandments of God, Jesus comes and says, grace, I am the word of God and I offer you grace. Come, repent, come, humble yourselves, come, eat at this feast that I have prepared for you, but come, come because there is grace. Yet, yet, don't let go of that second part. For those of us looking for guidance, for those of us wondering about purpose, for those of us who feel the world tilting underneath us, God's word in Jesus Christ also offers us truth. Here are the plans of God. Here are the promises of God. Here is the table of God. Here is the body and blood of God. This is the truth. Hold on to it. Receive it as the gift that it is. Let me close this in prayer. God, we long to be a people who hear your word, who hear you and your word, God. Teach us to read this word. Give us wisdom. Give us, Lord, even those who could speak prophetically to us, guide us, instruct us, challenge us. But Lord, ultimately reveal yourself to us in Jesus Christ as the one who is full of grace, who is full of truth.